Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Super Trump Crime of the Century. The reason we're here is because I've got John Hellowell here, who uh, was saxophonist, other instruments, backing vocals and all sorts of things. A long-time member of Super Trump because he's got a fantastic forthcoming show at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester on the 24th of May. Welcome, John. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be covering a, a range of tracks from your journey over the last 50 years or so, and obviously lots of time to discuss Supertramp. One of the reasons I opened with Crime of the Century was that um, I understand that was is one of the, the tracks that you'll be playing in your forthcoming Big Band Supertramp show. How do you approach arranging the music in a different setting? Well, yes, it's different. Um, the, this Big Band show thing is all instrumental for a start off so you've got to convey the 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 sense of the 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 song itself and then solos and then sometimes people take a a different twist on it and and do something a bit different so um although with our version with the big band of of crime of the century it actually finishes with myself playing the semi-famous um solo at the end mm sort of uh, verbatim, as they say for words, just as is. It's rather intriguing how uh, we've got about four or five different arrangers and how, how they how they get to each tune. And they pick some um, some famous tunes and, and some not quite as famous Supertramp tunes. So it's quite an, a nice mixture. And this is a, a project that you have uh, successfully done before? Yeah, yeah, just the the the, the, um, the history of it is that about five years ago, uh, they asked me at the college if if I would do something like like that with the student band, and um, I said yeah, and it was it, we got it together and it was it was very successful. And then for some reason, we let that idea slip. But um, the guy that's a professor of saxophone at the Royal Northern College of Music, Rob Buckland, he's, he's been on at me for the last few years to to do it, do it with professional musicians as well. So last year we got the opportunity to do that, exactly that. And uh, it, it, we had a gig in Chester at a place called Story House. Nice gig. Mm. And uh, it went down very well. So he keeps pressing and we're doing more. We're going to do a, a, a jazz festival later in the year in Hull. Yeah. And we're going to go and play in Hamburg later wow. this year. And maybe more next year. Um, I think it could be something that people really like. Mm. In terms of the uh, musicians that that you're working with, are they are they also from the the Royal Northern College of Music? Well, they're all professional musicians, and they're all most of them are from the northwest. And there's there's one or two chaps come up from London to do it. And I'm just looking to see if I can see the personnel. And they're all top players that play in bands, orchestras, whatever. So that yeah, that's it. And it's a full rhythm section and, and four trumpets, four trombones, five saxophones, the whole the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> so you'll be playing some shows in addition to, to the one coming up uh, very shortly then in, in Manchester. Yes, we're playing at at, at um a jazz festival in, in Hull in November. Can't quite recall the date but it's on my website great so people need to kind of look out for other other shows if they can't make it over very short yeah they can look out uh, i've i've 
I'm a bit um, uh, backward in coming forward with my website, but I've, I've put these dates on recently. It's a very easy web- website to remember. It's johnhelliwell.com. So it's easy for people to uh, to find it. And the dates are on there with more to come. Brilliant. So I want to kind of take you back, maybe not quite to the beginning of your musical journey, but kind of towards the, the earlier days and a, a few tracks that people may not necessarily connect you with, but obviously you were uh, a core part of. And uh, this, uh, one of the first uh, certainly recorded bands that you you were in with was with uh, alan bound wasn't it yes yeah just briefly mm. but when i left school um i went to birmingham uh, to work for a computer company ict and i was a computer programmer i also played in the evenings and um i joined a group and um it was called jugs o'henry and, and at one point i decided to leave the computer business and go sort of pro with this group called Jugs O'Henry. Mm. It didn't last all that long. And so I reached a turning point in my life. And it was, I put an advert in the Melody Maker. And I also applied for an advert for a computer programmer in Sweden. And um, I got a reply to the to the Have Sax Will Travel advert in the Melody Maker from Alan Bowne. Mm. And he was, uh, he, he was continuing with his with his group, the Alan Bound set. Anyway, I chose them instead of the programming, and um, and that was that was the Alan Bound, which was it was a good band for. Um, we used to do clubs and all over the place, and uh, it it was good for playing a lot, not for making any money or anything. But that's not what usually why musicians start playing music, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I've chosen uh, Thailand, Thailand, which is uh, certainly quite well known, but. How to pigeonhole the sound for for the band? It, it, it does seem quite eclectic. The the mix of music that you and Alan and the guys played uh, from that period. Well, yes. Um, interestingly enough, when I joined them, in, in, it was about sixty four, sixty five. Um, it was a kind of soul band playing music by the Impressions and uh, Curtis Mayfield and stuff like that. And then and throughout the sixty six, seven, and eight. We we sort of uh, transformed ourselves to be sort of flower power group, and then mm. um, that's Toyland was about there, about sixty seven or eight, uh, and then we went really quite a, a bit out there, a bit bit sort of far out stuff later later on in the in the sixties and the early seventies. Um, but Toyland was a kind of um, <laughs> yeah yeah flowers and and hippie stuff and wide flared trousers and bouffant hair, hairdos and rose-tinted spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in that sort of 66, 67, 68 period, who, who were the musicians that you played with in, in the Alan Bound? Well, the the, uh, the singer, and the singer on Toyland, in, in fact, is Jess Roden, really good singer. Uh, who else was on that? It was Alan Bound himself, and then mm. the, the, the rhythm section stayed the same all through the those sort of four or five years. Jess Roden was replaced when he wanted to leave by Robert Palmer. Oh. And that was, that was a nice, that was a good period. And then Robert left to join Vinegar Joe and then pursue a solo career. And then we had a, a singer called Gordon Neville. Mm. So we went through one or, one or two singers, but good ones. Let's go down and 
How, how the sound evolved and yourself referred to kind of how the, the music kind of went out there progressive i think that's the word i couldn't think of the word before progressive yeah because um the the album uh stretching out which was on island in uh, 71 has got one of one of the tracks that you have composed turning point and that's oh. that's definitely more on the progressive end of things yeah that's a funny one i only write a song I only write a tune once every sort of 22 years. So I've just done my second. So our third, I can't remember what it is now. Mm. So um, I don't write much, much material. It's uh, probably turning point is a reason why. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, when you think of the arc of the, you know, say five years of, of Alan Bound, the, the shifts in sound and it was, it was so many and, and membership, did, did things just kind of run out of steam? Yeah, there was a point about 1971 or two and uh, we would, we'd been going, you know, we'd, we'd played on the continent a bit and we played quite a lot in this country and we'd, we'd changed our style and things were, things were sort of bumbling on and then there was a certain point where, where all of us decided that we wanted to leave Alan, things had got to such a, a pitch, and so we we all left Alan one week, and then we we formed a group called Wizard. It, it, it wasn't Roy Wood's hmm. uh, Wizard; it was a group called Wizard, and um, we did we did a gig in Fulham, Fulham Road. Uh, there was a there was a good gig around at that time, and and we got there, and then the manager 
the previous manager of the Alan Bound set turned up and took all the equipment away. He said it was his. He took our van away. Hmm. <laughs> so we were kind of just left completely high and dry with, with nothing. So that that kind of just fell apart a bit. So all of us got different jobs, different music jobs. Hmm. I worked in strip clubs and and uh, and cabaret clubs. And I also joined some backing bands for US singers coming over, like Jimmy Ruffin, Arthur Conley, hmm. uh, and, and others. And then I went to work in Germany, ah. working for a, a guy that did sort of Ray Charles music. We played American air bases. That was in 72, 72 and 3. Mm. Yeah, so uh, we were just bumbling on trying to make a living as a, as a musician.
There is a bit of a connection from the latter period of, of the, the, your time in Alan Bowne and, and in terms of how you ended up in S- Supertramp through uh, Dougie Thompson? Yes, yes. Um, Dougie was uh, the, the bass player. That, he was the third bass player for um, for the Alan Bowne set. Stan Haldane and, and Stan left. And then we had Andy Brown. And then we had Dougie Thompson, young kid from... Uh, from Scotland, he was when he joined. He was, he was only about nineteen, eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, we had Dougie and a mad guitar, a mad Scottish guitarist. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, Dougie was in that band that we we sort of all left Alan Bowne, and then he went to work in different clubs. And then, obviously, earlier than me, he he answered an advert in the Melody Maker for, and joined up with Rick and Roger and uh, became part of Supertramp which is interesting. I think the first single that you were on in, in that new lineup of Supertramp was uh, Land Ho. Yeah, that was good. Uh, what happened with, with Supertramp is, just briefly, is is that Dougie had joined, uh, and then they did some gigs and a disastrous tour in Norway or something, and then it was Rick and Roger decided they would like to change the rhythm section, but they didn't, they didn't have the, um, the heart to tell them so they just broke the band broke up and then the next week 
got back together and they got some they got a, a different drummer and a, and a, was it a guitarist or a bass player? No, Roger played bass at, at first. Anyway, they uh, they'd heard Bob Siebenberg play in a pub. He played with a group called Bees Make Honey, and um, they liked him, so they asked him to join. And then Dougie said, "What about um, John from the Alan Bound set?" And uh, they said, "Ah, oh, maybe that's good." And so Dougie called me while I was in Germany, working with this guy, and and said, um, uh, "Would you like to come down and have a, have a blow?" So that was that was uh, summer of uh, 1973, and it was those five of us: Dougie, Bob, myself, Rick, and Roger that uh, that got together, and um, we made what was to be Supertramp's third album then, which was Crime of the Century. But just before that, we decided to go and and see what it was like recording together. So we ended up cutting that. Um, uh, land hole, and there was a B side. So I think it was called Summer Romance.
And with uh, tracks like Dreamer, you know, getting into the charts, you were suddenly on BBC TV, starting to get success there. That must have been a real buzz. Yeah, it seemed to work really well. Although, I mean, the the, the bands on the first two albums, Before Crime, I mean, they're, they're good. But there was just a, 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 a good rapport between us all. And we all, and I think a lot of it is being uh, selfless in that putting the group first and not trying to be um, everyone. No one was trying to be a star or anything. No one was trying to dominate the proceedings. Naturally, there's a, a bigger emphasis on the songwriters and the singers, but uh, with the, the rest of us, it seemed to work very well. And not only musically, a recording and stuff, but playing and doing gigs and, and living together and, and having to travel and everything, it all, it all seemed to work out really, really well. And so we did make, it was going to be, if it hadn't have been uh, successful or whatever, it was going to be their last attempt at making an album, you know, Crime of the Century. But it seemed to fit together, we seemed to fit together so well, and, the, and then the music seemed to, to be really strong, that it gave us that propulsion to continue into, into the future.
the chronology of it is 73 I came along and uh, hung out and then eventually we uh, the uh, the record company somebody at the record company the A&R man his name was Dave Margerison he he took us under his wing and asked if he could be the manager or whatever and he got um, a country uh, a farmhouse down in the countryside uh, for us all to go and live together and, and rehearse and then uh, get all the demos together for what was to be Crime of the Century. And then we recorded it. And then we did a, a tour, a big tour in 74, playing all over this country, uh, which was interesting. And, and then our sights were sort of set on the States as well, because the record company was from the States. And we'd had to... Uh, interesting thing happened while we were recording Crime of the Century. We were at... Um, studio in London and it turned out that the M of A&M Jerry Moss was going to come over and uh, come down and have a listen and uh, and all the people the people management at A&M Records London were worried because we were spending too much money and but Jerry came over and and sat in on the crime sessions and went back to the, to his um, to his British colleagues and said let him carry on let him do it it's going to be good so we had that freedom, which was nice, to be able to record what we wanted instead of having to be stopped or or shoe on into something we didn't want to do. So it's quite a feat, too, doing so much recording and then trying to get it down, whatever you've done, trying to get it down to two tracks for stereo. Ken Scott was a producer, which we'd got, and he did such a great job. Then you've got to another problem. You've got to take this music that you've done six months of recording and 48 tracks or whatever it would have been at the time. And then you've got to get that down so that five people can play it. Anyway, we seem to be doing well because we got um, the album. People started using it to demonstrate hi-fi systems and that inspired us. We wanted the live shows to be like sitting in a giant hi-fi. And uh, I think we did quite well with that. We had a six, well, we had a sixth member called Russell Pope, who was the uh, sound man, who was very, very helpful in all aspects of our making music, even with the songwriters helping and with the lyrics and, and stuff. And he remained our sound man for many, many years. He just passed away last year, in fact. I would say pernickety would be a good adjective to describe his approach to uh, making music and sound checks and everything. It was very, very exacting. It'd make, you, it'd make, not me, it'd make Bob bang his drums for about three quarters of an hour on, on the afternoon of a gig just to get everything exactly right. Yeah, we did, sorry, we did hours and hours of sound checking and everything, but it was worth it in the end. It was good. I've previously spoken to uh, Ken Scott, including about this particular period, and you talked about that uh, attention to detail live, but that that also was appeared to be quite apparent in in the recording sessions and tracks like School, recording them, but also recreating them live must have been quite a feat. Yeah, it was because yeah, all that all that music's got to be just played. Then I mean, we hadn't expanded the band even, uh, but then it was just five of us doing it. So. Um, you can imagine that my role, I mean, the saxophone is not playing all the time in Supertramp, so all the rest of the time I'm 
dashing between this keyboard and this string machine and an almond organ or whatever it would be on stage. We managed to get it quite smooth in, you know, in in the end, but it, it was, there was quite a lot to think about.
you're coming along. What happened was, uh, 73, I, I joined, we, we rehearsed, 74, we released Crime of the Century and we toured in this country and we, we felt that we'd sort of toured enough. We played all the places you're supposed to play and then we thought, well, it'd be nice to be able to be successful in the United States. So in 75, we went over, they, they were still playing Crime of the Century and we went to live in California. We sort of up sticks and lived there because the manager manager's wife was from there. Bob Siebenberg was from there and the Recon Company was there. It was great. So we went to record at A&M Records in, in uh, Hollywood and we lived in California. We started to make uh, Crisis What Crisis and we came back to London to mix it with Ken Scott and we carried on touring. But we were still living over there. So... When it came time to make the next album, we went to this uh, studio called Caribou in Colorado, in the Rocky Mountains. It's where Elton John made an album there. He called it, he called it Caribou. So that's where we did uh, give a little bit, as far as I remember. Oh, 
now we have a track that people won't necessarily associate you with, but um, I think you were had quite a, a role on it. And it's uh, Finn Lizzie dancing in the moonlight. And I understand the the connection that that led you to featuring on that track is uh, Tony Visconti. Partly, not ex- not entirely. No, the real ah. the real physical connection yeah. with Supertramp and Finn Lizzie is that Bob Siebenberg's best friend when he was growing up was Scott Gorham. Uh. He got to know Scott very well. And in fact, Bob got to know Scott's sister, Vicky, and married her. So Bob's wife is the ex-wife now, but at the time in the 70s, mm. Bob's wife is this, the sister of uh, Scott Gorham. So they knew each other really well, and they used to used to hang out. And we were in Toronto on tour in 77, I think it was, and um, Thin Lizzy were in town recording. And so they said, hey, come down to the studio. Is it, have you got your saxophone with you, sort of thing? So I, I came along with my saxophone and, and we cut that track in, in, in Toronto in 77. But it works so well. I mean, the sax lifts it and gives it that sort of hit record sound. Yeah, it's, it's quite good. They've got quite an interesting sort of double tracked sound on, on the instrument, different than, different than Supertramp. And um, I enjoy playing, playing on it. And uh, yeah, it was me on that. And in fact... That year or the next year, I was in London, and they got me to go on, on top of the pops with them. Hmm. It's quite good. Hmm. It's quite different. I'd been on top of the pops with Supertramp, but yeah. uh, top of the pops was a great, great show. Yeah, everyone watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pan's people, the, oh, the dancers, yeah. they were great. <laughs> yeah, we used to hang out with them in, in oh, yeah. the uh, in the canteen. <laughs> it was nice. Bus is long gone. 
in the moonlight on this long hot summer night. Dancing in the moonlight, in the moon. it's got me in its spotlight. It's got me in its spotlight. Dancing in the moonlight, in the moonlight. on this long. Now we're going back to Supertramp, a track that um, certainly over here in the UK, people will absolutely know and love that one. Part of the, what is uh, it is such a, a landmark album, Breakfast in America. Um, yes. Can you tell me about that that track and that time? I mean, it, that must be one of the, the peak times for the group. Yeah, the time was, uh, we'd been going through, we'd, we'd done this we'd done this record in, in, uh, in, in Colorado, and then we'd come back, that was... Uh, even in the quietest moments, and and then we've done another tour, and then we were going to make a, a, the next album, uh, which turned out to be Breakfast in America. So it was made in in in, in the states, and at a, a studio called the Village Recorders in uh, in West LA, and um, it's another album. It took us months and months to record and mix and stuff, but everything seemed to come along together more so perhaps than the, the previous two albums although it's it's not um it's not like a concept album per se like mm. crime of the century turned out to be but it seemed to be a really good collection of um of songs and i think that one of the reasons why it made it quite big is that uh, we'd we'd got this new producer uh an engineer by then peter henderson uh, what had happened was when we when we recorded in Colorado a previous album, we'd had a change from Ken Scott, and we we decided to get Jeff Emmerich, who was uh, uh, another of the Be- sort of Beatles uh, engineers. Oh, yeah. uh, anyway, Jeff couldn't come to the recording, mm. so he sent out his young sort of apprentice, you could say, uh, Pete, Peter Henderson. And we got on really well with him. And then Jeff Emery came to the um, mm. came to the mixing sessions of that album. And we didn't have a sort of chemistry with him, but we, we completed the album. But for the next one, which was, uh, which was Breakfast in America, we decided just to use Peter and ourselves as producers. And it seemed to work well. And on the mix of all the numbers in the end... It, it sounded good sort of in hi-fi like we were used to, but it also sounded really good on the radio through a little speaker. So all the songs there people would hear on their radios and, and really the sort of music, music came through with them all. Breakfast, mommy dear, 
vocals or was it breathing or something on the logical song yeah that was a few of us yeah it's um yes it right. there's a sigh isn't there <sighs> yeah it's that yeah i think that was me and dougie probably roger mm. well let, let's all listen out for the for the size then on uh, the logical song <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
I haven't really asked uh, about the, the the process where Roger and Rick would would bring a song to the band. What, what was the role that you and the band played in in shaping uh, the music? Oh well, it's interesting because I, I consider the other three of us were quite a big part in in shaping the whole the whole not just in individual songs, but the whole oeuvre of, of Supertramp. And um, I think we were. I think mm. they used to come along and play something, or we'd hear them play something, and we'd say, oh, that's nice, yeah, let's let's try and do it. And we'd, we'd work it up a bit, and, and uh, someone would say, well, it'd be nice to have a clarinet solo there or whatever. And so we all participated in that next creative phase uh, of, of a tune. And I think that's one of the reasons why the whole Supertramp thing was successful. It's because it it wasn't ju- just the songwriter by himself. The songwriter had the other songwriter. Mm. Rick had Roger, Roger had Rick. But, he, but they both of them also had the other three of us to, uh, yeah. to make something really kind of unique out of what they brought to the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Next, we have uh, It's Raining Again from Famous Last Words. Because obviously, as time passes and technology passes, did the the sound of the band kind of evolve o- over that period? I think there was some sort of synthesizers coming in. Uh, yeah, we, we'd, we'd made use of uh, synthesizers and strings, and, and um, although we'd use real strings on crime and and uh, mm. cr- and crisis, etc., we, we sort of managed to do it ourselves with more modern technologies, good synthesizers. We used to use one called Oberheim, which was one of the first kind of, uh, by today's standards, they're very big and cumbersome physically, but they seem to work and get nice sounds. Um, now it's raining again was, was from yeah a, a period after, after way after breakfast in America. And interesting period in the band's history, um, after Breakfast was recorded, we did all of 79 touring. Mm. And so by the time that year ended, we were a bit fed up of touring. But fortunately, we'd already rec- we'd recorded um, a, live, uh, a live album in uh, Paris. Yeah. So that came out in 1980. And then and sort of had a little rest for a while and then started up recording uh, for, that, for that album, Famous Last Words. Uh, but at the time, Roger had moved to the countryside uh, and Rick had still remained in the city sort of thing. And um, Roger really wanted to record at his place and Rick didn't really want to go up there, but he did. And then we did some recording down at Rick's place in L.A. and Roger didn't really want to come down and do it, but he did. So, And Roger at that time was probably thinking about leaving so there was kind of some tensions in the band but it was a good period it was a good period for me i enjoyed it so we got that album together mostly up at roger's place up in the country which is uh, a place called near a place called nevada city california Mm. it was one of roger's songs and he he managed to get a little chorus of uh, i think there might have been school kids or kids or something singing it's raining it's pouring uh, it seemed to be a, a very poppy tune. Some people don't like it so much. I think it's a really good single, that It's Raining Again. And um, 
of course, I, I like the singles and stuff that feature mm. that have a small feature for the uh, saxophone. Unlike, of course, unlike Dreamer, there's no saxophone on that track, you know. Ah, is that the one you were on? Do you remember? Do you remember? Yeah, we you on wine glasses on Dreamer. I was on wine glasses, yeah, yeah. Which is quite interesting, you know, you've got to fill them and get them exactly to the right um, degree for, for the note. So it mm. takes some time. You, you get through some wine. <laughs> but yeah. yes, so I, that, that was good. Um, it's Raining Again was, uh, and it's obviously it's played a lot on people thinking about the weather and everything, especially in this country, it gets played a lot.
Now I've got um, a live version of uh, Goodbye Stranger from uh, the the live set, I think from the late 90s, it was the best of times. Yes. Which was the sort of incarnation with uh, Rick at the helm. Roger obviously had, had left for a solo career. I picked that song because it's, it's said, and this is, may not be true, that that was kind of, that song, which I think was from the Breakfast in America period, was kind of emblematic or had some themes with the slight differences of approach that, that Rick and Roger had and that came out in, in the lyrics to that song? Uh, yeah, it could be. I didn't I didn't realise at the time. I, I haven't delved into it later, but I don't know. I, I always thought it was it was about some kind of relationship that Rick was mm. writing about. And I, I can't relate it specifically to to Roger. No. But obviously by that nineteen ninety nine we were le- leaping ahead. Because hmm. yeah, because Roger Roger left after we did a tour, which was after the uh, the album um, with Raining Again on and everything. We did a massive tour, and then he left to pursue his solo career. And the, the other three of us decided to carry on with Rick, mm. which was interesting, and, and pursue that side of where we were at. And, and I thought that we did a really good... Uh, we did really well with the, the, the album Brother Way Bound, it sort of set us on a particular direction, and then we carried on doing the albums and the live shows. Yeah, I think Goodbye Stranger from the best of times, I think that's from the Royal Albert Hall. But we did, yeah, we did a tour in 1997, and it was, it, I think it was recorded on that. Mm. By which time we'd expanded the bands slightly, and, uh, uh, but, I think that we we were doing well at that time, you know, really enjoying playing. Mark Hart had joined the band? Yeah, Mark had joined. We got um, a nice guitarist, Carl Verheyen and Marty Walsh, because eventually Dougie had, had left uh, in the mid-80s or late-80s, Cliff Hugo, the bass player. And then sometimes Rick, seemed, Rick liked um, mm. Lee Thornburg playing trumpet, so we had like a horn section between me and, and Lee, and then another thing that interesting, I think it was '97, maybe the first time that a Bob's son, Jesse, a Jesse Seabird, joined the band on just playing percussion and backing vocals. Uh, but it turned out that uh, as the years progressed, Jesse is absolutely wonderful musician, a great singer, plays his, plays guitar, plays keyboards. So he joined the band. He came back with the band on subsequent actual recordings and tours so that in the end he was sharing the some of the vocal parts as well as playing guitar and, and keyboards i still work with jesse occasionally he's, he's, a, he's a really good musician so i think on that um goodbye stranger he's, he was probably there on percussion It was an early morning yesterday I was up before the dawn And I really have enjoyed my stay But I must be moving on Like a king without a castle Like a king without a throne I'm an early morning lover And I must be moving on In what you say is the undisputed truth, but I have to have things my own way to 
for those sweet ladies Said the shimmer through my veins But I'm the one shining Shining like brand new I never look behind me My troubles will be few
are there any particular songs from that era that I think that I might have missed? Well, Brother, Where You Bound, um, the, the uh, Cannonball from that, it's a long track. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's a, it became a sort of dance feature. Yeah, uh, there, there's some good tracks on that, on that Brother, Where You Bound. We've made so many albums, I can't always remember titles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, Can- Cannonball was the sort of big, you know, the sort of bigger hit from from that. Yes. Uh, that album, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It, it was quite good. We kind of set ourselves in a bit bit of a harder direction. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Cannonball and Brother Where You Bound was the first one we recorded after the um, after Roger left. Yeah, I think that set us on that direction.
Before we talk about our final track, I just wanted to ask you about something because uh, I've, I've read that you uh, featured on uh, the, the the momentary lapse of reason Pink Floyd album, but I I, I cannot find kind of which which track or tracks yeah. you, you were, were on. It's hard. First of all, um, they spelt my name wrong. They called me John Halliwell, but that, that's okay. But um, mm. there's no specific reference to which of the three saxophone players. Uh, that are on that album, there's no reference in the liner notes or anything to point you in the right direction. So you can only tell, like, I can tell if I listen. Mm. Tom Scott, saxophonist, and there's Scott Page, the saxophonist, and there's myself. And it, it all came about, well, it came about um, presumably because he liked my playing, but uh, we, when we were making Brother Where You Bound, we, we were sitting around one day with the with the uh, the actual track "Brother Way Bound," and uh, mm. and said we this we said to each other we need a guitar solo there, and then somebody said somebody said um, yeah it should be a guitarist that sounds a bit like Dave Gilmore mm. that'd be good and I said to them um, why not get Dave Gilmore to do a solo that sounds very much like Dave Gilmore. Uh, oh yeah, that's a good idea. So he, we got him, and he came along and played with us. And then a few months later, he was making this album in Los Angeles, and he invited me down, and I played. So it was just like a, a one night 
a couple of hours session thing. So it, it's on there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we may never find out. <laughs> well, if I'm sitting with you, I could tell you. I, I think someone asked me once, and I, and, I, and I listened, and I told him, you know, like, if you listen to this track to uh, two minutes 47, right. that's me. <laughs> but, but if you listen to track three at one minute something, that's not me. So I, I have to go and, yeah. and pinpoint it. Nevertheless, I am on there. Oh, and they never paid me either. Seriously? Seriously, yeah, they never paid Gosh. me. So if you're listening, Dave, <laughs> <laughs> sure I'll let is. you off. I'll <laughs> let Dave off if he's listening. Absolutely, yeah. We're here, John, and it's our final track. And um, it's from your uh, Creme Anglaise project, uh, Wally Wally. We had a sort of hiatus in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, living in California. We're all living in California. And um, I decided to come back and Mm. and study music. And I decided to come back to this country. So I I came back to my roots because I'm from this little town called Tolmerden in uh, Yorkshire. And uh, I went to the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester and studied music. I didn't finish my course because Supertramp got sort of going again in 1996 and 7. But it was nice. I met quite a few good musicians and I continued to live over here, which I still am. Uh, And then doing various gigs and hanging out with people, I decided, oh, it'd be nice to, to form my own group. What shall I call it? Well, we got a gig in Geneva playing for a watch company called IWC. And uh, I knew they, spe- they spoke French in Geneva. So I, somehow we just came up with this name, Creme Anglaise, which in French means custard. Uh, I view it also as the cream of the English. So I'd, I'd, got, I'd been working with uh, a super jazz guitarist, we should say, yes. say called Mike Walker. <laughs> And, um, and various other people uh, got to know some really good musicians. And uh, so I decided that it'd be nice to make an album and and do th- do this gig and see what happens. And uh, I asked Mark Hart to come over from California and sing a couple of tunes, etc. So uh, that's how that project project got going. We played in uh, we played in Geneva. We enjoyed our time together, and, and we made an album. So yeah, that that's it really. And just um, good, really good musicians, mostly English, and uh, uh, I could do what I wanted. So with Creme Anglaise, and we we just play occasionally. Now it's it's not a big deal, but um, obviously not with Mark because just to do a gig, say in the Lake District or Manchester, mm-hmm. one off, uh, you can't get Mark to fly over from from California to do that. So uh, the personnel has changed very slightly over over the, the years. So it's it's mostly northwest. It is all northwest musicians, including, may I say, as, a, apart from uh, Mike Walker, including a, a really great Hammond organ and keyboard player and singer called John Ellis, mm. who I'll make reference to later. <laughs> yeah, because um, as well as... Uh... Big band Supertramp. I've heard you've got an, another a project as well that you're working on. Yeah, it's just a little little dream of mine to play with strings. I've managed to persuade people to uh, put on a gig. This is at a place called Story House in Chester, the end of July. And um, it's me playing with a string quartet and 
Hammond Organ, and that's played by John, who I just mentioned. And it's part of a mini festival there at this place. The numbers of all that I've chosen a, a selection of ballads, including a Supertramp track. And uh, at the moment, these these tunes are being arranged by a great player, composer, arranger called Andy Scott. So that's a sort of collaboration between Andy Scott, myself, John Ellis, organ, and uh, string quartet, Racky Sings, string quartet. Mm. So we've kind of committed, so we've got to do it, and we're going to do some recording as well. So we, hopefully we're going to make an album and then do more gigs. We've got two gigs so far. Brilliant. So, basically, people need to head over to johnhelliwell.com to find out everything about you and your forthcoming shows. Yes. <laughs> There's a super big tramp band, which is nice. To use the the word super tramp uh, in context with, like, any advertising of a gig or, or whatever is, is not really fair on the because there might be people might just glance at it and think, oh, Supertramp's playing or mm. whatever it would be. So although yeah. I'm very, very proud of my heritage, it's it's nice to be able to make it a bit sort of weird. People look at it and think, well, what's that? Is that what's that? Is that something to do with Supertramp or what? So I've, I was split it up. Thank you so much for your time, John. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to... Uh, spend a bit of time with you, talk about the last 50 years, talk a lot about Super Tramp, talk a lot about the uh, Super Big Tramp Band Project and all the things that you're involved with. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you again. Okay, Jason.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.